This is the Game Changers Experience. Deep dive conversations with leading business disruptors, Olympic athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and influencers from around the world. This show will teach you insights about the winning principles in mindset, productivity, marketing, branding, entrepreneurship, business strategy, and more. Hosted by Productivity Authority, business strategist, former elite athlete, author, and public speaker, Adam Strong. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Game Changers audio experience with myself, Adam Strong. And today, we have an, another amazing fun pack show with my good friend, Chris Noggle. Now, Chris is a what we call America's money mindset expert, if you like what it's going. He's got he gone from pro snowboarder right the way through to being an expert in knowing more about how to manage your money and create more wealth. He's a speaker. He's also been featured, him and his wife also featured on an amazing TV show called HTV, which I believe is owned by Discovery, from what Chris tells me, which was a pilot show that they did and was showed six times, which is all around flipping houses and property and stuff like that. So today's conversations, we're going to be talking about money, but more importantly, we're going to be talking about wealth, passive income. Uh, we're going to be talking about the myths around money, what some of the uh, common mistakes that people make when it comes to trying to create more wealth, and why people are still stuck in uh, the whole kind of trading time for money mindset type of thing. So uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, it's an honor and a privilege. Thanks for having me on. All right, cool. So listen, I know we had some great conversations offline and stuff like that. Now, I know that something you went from pro snowboarder right through to money mindset. Now, the kind of money mindset expert, but I would love to know more about like your past life. How did you get to kind of the money mindset side of stuff? I wonder if you could give us uh, the listeners a little bit of a, a, a down through. Sure. So I didn't grow up with money. I grew up in a lower, lower middle-class family where dad was an alcoholic and not in the picture. My mom had to raise me by herself. It was a huge struggle for her. Uh, there was many times she had a hard time keeping a 700 square foot uh, house going and keeping that running. But, you know, the one thing, even though I didn't grow up with money that uh, she instilled in me and is dream. She always, you know, had this way of making me feel like there was nothing that wasn't possible, even though we didn't have things, we didn't have material things, we didn't have money, I couldn't just say, hey, mom, I want a new skateboard. Hey, mom, I want a new BMX. There was always a path to getting anything that you wanted. But I think that is a lot of the reason why I've had success. So that was my upbringing. And, you know, my biggest dream as a kid, you know, when I was real young, I wanted to be a BMX rider and then a skateboarder. And then I found snowboarding because I live in Buffalo, New York. We get a, a handful of snow out here. And uh, once I found the snowboarding, I knew. I knew that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. Now, the pathway to being a pro snowboarder living in Buffalo, New York wasn't easy either. Nothing in my life has been easy. <laughs> but the reason for that is we don't have mountains here. We don't have big events here. I mean, yes, the snowboarding is very good. Yes, we have a lot of snow, but we don't have the epicenter, if you will, of what a snowboarder needs to make it. So it resulted in me in a very young age at about 15 years old, getting in a car with or a car with my friend Ben and driving six hours every single weekend to Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, wow. you know, the, the eastern seaboard where the mountains were to compete. And I did this for years. And, wow. you know, it just became a norm. <clears throat> you know, my mom 
you know, probably got a lot of her, her gray hair from these trips because they were <laughs> pretty, pretty, uh, you know, obviously nerve wracking. You, you drive all night, Friday night, you get there, you compete Saturday, you sleep on a floor Saturday night, you get up, you compete Sunday, you get back in the car and you drive home. And we only had one mishap. Well, actually two, I'm sorry. We crashed twice. Uh, once was under a semi, but you know, that's how I did it. And a lot of people are like, you know, becoming a pro snowboarder, how would you do that? Well, you do everything everybody else is unwilling to do. That's the only way you can do it. So how did I go from there to being, you know, a, a financial advisor and America's number one money mentor? Well, there's a little piece in between. And that was, you know, the work ethic, you know, I worked on a farm at a young age. And then all of a sudden, I got a real job at 16 years old, uh, working at a restaurant. But that job taught me one of the most important things. And that taught me that Sometimes your boss completely degrades you. And I, I was clinically depressed because nothing I did at that job was right. He made me feel completely defeated every single day. And wow. I remember the day I quit, I came home to my mom thinking she'd be upset. And I said, mom, I want to start a clothing line in the basement. I had been printing t-shirts after school with my art teacher, Mr. Mahalski. And that right there, that was 1992, marked the time when I started my first company. Now, I didn't start my first company with ambitions of being wealthy and, you know, having this giant company. I started a, a company because I didn't want to work for anybody. I didn't want to trade hours for dollars and be degraded like that. So these shirts that I printed and sold in high school out of a backpack were a means for me to have gas money and a means for me to be able to get to those snowboard contests. That's the only goal I had. And nothing else mattered. It was just how do I get to these contests so I can fulfill my dream? Well, a year later, I had that clothing line in a whole bunch of shores or stores across the Eastern seaboard. Cause what I do is I'd pack my stuff up. I'd travel the snowboard contest and I'd sell my clothing, you know, after the competition to all the shop owners that I got to know. Nice. And that's how I did it. But 17 years old, I had a new dream. I wanted to shop. I had seen all these guys that had these awesome snowboard skateboard shops. I'm like, I want that. So I, began the process of writing business plans and getting turned down by every single bank, having my entire family pretty much just tell me I was crazy or stupid. <laughs> Why would you do that? My father pretty much giving me the ultimatum that I got to stop with these stupid dreams and just come work for the factory he worked for, you know, which resulted in cats in the cradle, uh, the song single being mailed to my dad and me not speaking to him for two years. But Wait. that dream almost died because when people tell you no enough, you start believing that it's actually not going to be reality. My mom saw this. And at that point, she actually put her house on the line. Like the only thing she had in the world, her house, she had about $70,000 in equity and she put it on the line. So her punk snowboard kid could chase his dream. Wow. And November of 1994, right before the Christmas season, fat man, P H A T fat man, board shops opened. And that was my next big dream. And, Everything was a dream from that point forward. Uh, from November 94 till early 2000s, I was literally in a dreamland. I was a pro snowboarder, running shops, opening multiple locations, and not making a ton of money, but like literally living the life. Were I had the like, lifestyle that people dream about. Were, were these like pop-up shops? You know, like, you know, like you get them in shopping malls. You have like these little pop Or were you just like kind of like giving your stuff to already shop owners, then they were reselling what you already had, right? Well, I was still selling my clothing line, which I'd, I'd had to change the name because Russell Simmons owned Fat Farm. So it was no longer Fat Clothing. It was now Lurkin Syndicate. So I was still selling my clothing. But no, these were 
actually inline stores. Um, you know, the, the first store started at a thousand square foot, but we doubled the space to 2000. The next store was, uh, I think 2000 square feet. And the, you know, eventually wow. the main, uh, store was about 4,000 square feet. So no, these wow. were, these were actually inline stores, either in strip malls or in shopping malls. Um, so they weren't pop-ups. And then, like I said, I had my clothing lines in different shops as well. So I had sort of two different businesses going at the same time. So, so these, uh, I mean, when you first started up with the clothing line, though, what was so unique about like the, the clothing line? Was it was it the brand? Was it the logo? What, what was it exactly? Yeah, well, first off, it was 1992. So people would have to be old enough to understand that back then these things didn't exist. Exactly. Uh, skateboard, snowboard, you know, inspired clothing lines with a little bit of that. I wouldn't say hip hop, but just a little bit of that funny side, you know, the, the PHAT, which back then was you know kind of had that that riff of being cool and hip so the, the name was the first thing it was easy people remembered it it was different um but really it was the designs um what we did is i i i was always very creative and i drew a lot so i would i would literally draw out what i wanted the clothes to look like and then my mother in the beginning would take sample shirts that I'd order in bulk and we'd cut them up and we'd sew piping in the sleeves or we'd put ribbons <laughs> down the side to make it kind of like stripes. And uh, eventually I had, you know, before that clothing line kind of turned into the shop, I had four seamstresses working for me, making full ja you know, jackets and snowboard pants for, for my snowboard team. And wow. it was pretty wild. I mean, it, it's crazy to think that I was 16 or 17 years old doing this, So you but it, that, so let me just get this right. You did like, it's like, you you know, it's, this is way before kind of the, 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 the factory, right? Kind of mass. You guys had your mom and three other colleagues, four other colleagues that were actually hand making a fashion clothing line from scratch, right? That is correct. And I was buying That's fabric. Insane. I was buying bolts of fabric from this wow. manufacturer that did overruns and I built a strong relationship. So I was getting fabrics that the, the only companies that could get these fabrics, yes, right. they were a year old, but were companies like Burton snowboards. So, you know, I was literally this tiny little guy, but I was getting the same technology and fabric that Burton had used the season before because of this relationship I built. And I think the lady was just rooting for me because she knew how old I was. And uh, that's how I did it. We, we literally just had giant bolts of, of fabric. We had like, I'd buy ribbon and piping and everything. And you know how we did this is, I never told this once, but me and my mother would go to Joanne fabrics. Uh -huh. We would go to the pattern section. And what we would do is find a pattern for a jacket. And then I'd come back and I'd modify that pattern. I'd literally take that really thin pattern material that my mother would, you know, obviously pin on the fabric and cut out. And I would modify it and say, okay, mom, right here in the sleeve, I want to cut out a section. I want to color block here and I want to put piping. And how I figured all this out is remember as a pro snowboarder, I was able to see a lot of the snowboard companies' designs before they came out for the next season because I was at that level. And there was, uh, you know, Burton Snowboards. There was a company called Dub, D-U-B, that I followed a lot. And then another company called Volcom, which was a brand new company. So I started following, like, what these guys were doing at a, at a very high level that I was just kind of doing an underground in a in the basement of my mom's 700 square foot house. Wow. Did You didn't get, like, any, like, sponsorship deals from these guys, did you? Or, uh no, I mean, I was a sponsored snowboarder, but I wasn't getting sponsorship deals, you know, 
that supported my clothing line. Oh, okay. And I actually had a a team like a snowboard and eventually a skateboard team of riders that would test this stuff out in Mount Hood, Oregon, uh, during the summer months before we launched it the next year. So we, we actually had an R and D team. And I guess back then it was just my friends snowboarding. And I'm like, Hey, wear this jacket and tell me if you can rip it or wear these pants and tell me if you blow the the crotch area out, you know, that's, that was our R and D team. And it, it, uh, it worked because we definitely had a lot of jackets and stuff blow out and we fixed the problems every time. Love it. Love it. Love it. So, okay. So hang on a second, right? So you got your clothing line. You've got shops all over uh, along the eastern board. Well, I no, no, no. I, well, I had my clothing in shops. I only had okay. three stores at that time that were right. mine. So you're three stores, but you're 16 years old, 17 years old, thereabouts, right? You got mm-hmm. these uh, shops. Your mom's put. Your mom took money out of her equity out of her house in order to fund your ideas, if you like. So mm-hmm. okay. So let me get this right. Okay. With regards to you got your people making, hand making your fashion line. When did it get to the point where you thought this is getting too much, right? Or you got over too much over capacity where you thought, you know what, this isn't sustainable. What was, what, what was going through your mind when you thought to yourself, this is becoming a big problem? What was the next transitional phase? I don't think there was ever a time where I thought it was a problem. It was just all a journey. It, I, I'm telling you this, like there was a lot of hurdles we had to get over and, you right. know, a lot of growing pains, but it was the fun. I got to remember, like at this time, I'm like, you know, maybe I'm, you know, when I had the shops, I was 18, 19 years old. I'm a kid. Think of a 19 year old, like That's crazy. I'm running a business. Like, so I was just living the life. Yeah. So there wasn't a problem out there that, that made me think, oh my God, I'm, I'm in too deep. It was just like, okay, well, we got to increase manufacturing. I can't just do this with my four seamstresses. So how do I, who do I do? So I would make a couple phone calls to some of my snowboard sponsors. I'm like, Hey, where do you manufacture? Oh, China. And you know, I couldn't do the China thing because I just, you couldn't, but I found a manufacturer. Where were they at? I think they were in California. They were more expensive, but they could manufacture the clothing. And then I had like it locally, I had a whole bunch of screen printers and embroidery places that as I had expanded, they had expanded their business to facilitate. So there was never a time where I was like, oh my God. That's but crazy. I'll tell you what did happen is when I was living this dream and everything was going great, this is in the early 2000s, you know, we ha- I, I went through my first recession. I, I didn't even know what the word meant, you know, recession. What's that? You well, know, and not, it's all. I, 98, 2002. I can't. Yeah. 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 The dot com crash. Yep. Right. Right. So I'll parallel that to today. All the millennials and and the kids today, they have no concept, zero concept of a downtime. They don't even know what a a recession is. They don't know what a depression is. They only know that the market's up. So I'm just kind of planting the seed that that's a big problem because coming soon, we're going to have massive uh, realization like I had back in the you know, the late nineties, early two thousands with the dot-com crash. And when that crash happened, my retail stores fell about 30%. I mean, that was combated by, we just opened a brand new store that was highly leveraged. And then they ripped the entire street up in front of us. So nobody oh. could get to us. It was, it was like a, it was like a double whammy, you know, you had the, the, the recession and then you had the street being ripped up and it just, it brought me to my, you know, down to my knees. And I remember I needed a job. I could not make the payments on my, Chevy ZR2 S10 pickup, which they weren't much. I think they were like 199 bucks, but this is, this is remember the early 2000s. Exactly. Um, so I needed a job. So my friend Mike worked for little Caesars and I'm like, all right, well, do I go to little Caesars and deliver pizzas? Well, they told me they weren't hiring. So I put my resume out there and the only people 
that responded to my resumes were Wall Street firms of all places. But what come to find out, Wall Street loves self-starters. Wall Street loves uh, people that are coachable and entrepreneurs because we're very coachable. So I ended up going for interviews at these firms and I ended up getting a job at one of these Wall Street firms. And, and, and to me, like think of, think of how I was. I'm a pro snowboarder. I've got my shops, which is my dream. And now all of a sudden, like I got to put a suit on, which I didn't even own a suit. My grandmother <laughs> took me to this place, Lurch and Daly's and got me a gray suit. And I didn't, I've never tied a tie. So I had to get a zip tie. And that was, that was what I went to the interview in. And it felt weird. I felt so off put like just, it just, I didn't feel like I had my own skin on, right. you know, which was a difficult thing for me. So I got that job and I, I started working in it thinking, oh, this is temporary just till I can get back on my feet with my shops. But I ended up loving it. I started getting around people that were doing very well. I got around a whole different environment. I'm like, this is cool. You know, sometimes in life we need to pivot and we need to see different things. And that was this different thing. But it also forced something unique. At this point, I was kind of down on my shops because they weren't doing well. Yeah. And I started working on the shops like not in the stores. I wasn't working in the stores, maybe on the weekends, that was it. And I had my, my employees, I had promoted them to managers and now they're running the stores, which was unique because at first I thought, oh, they're going to crash. Nobody can run these stores like me, you know, because, you know, when you're a shop owner, like you get so stuck in it that nobody can do it better. And that, that was my mindset. But, you know, they started doing better than I did. They started doing new things that were working far better. The sales started going up and I'm, I was able to now start working on like, okay, well, how do I brand this business? How do I really start working on the business and the marketing and events and all sorts of cool stuff that I love to do, but I never could do before because I was so busy helping customers put together skateboards and snowboards. So that transition and most business owners never get to that transition. They never get out of their business. They created, you know, their dream, which was their business, this idea. But then in reality, they created themselves a trap, which ends up being a job. Yes, you, you own the business, but it's a job. You just exactly. created something that you have to trade hours for dollars. And now you're stuck and you can't grow the business because you're stuck in the business. Yep. I was fortunate because of a recession to actually pull out and actually start working on the business. And, you know, Adam, if that didn't happen, I don't know where I'd be, to be quite That's frank. Crazy. I really don't. I wouldn't have got into Wall Street. I wouldn't have become one of the top three financial advisors at the firm. I wouldn't have started to learn the traditional ways of how money works, which eventually has led to where I'm at now, which is ever, I'm totally against all the traditional ways that money works because what they teach you is to give up control of your money. And that's why most people stay on the financial hamster wheel, or I call it financial slavery is because they get stuck because they've been taught their entire lives by people like what my old profession was as an advisor, telling them, give up control of your money. Let me manage your money as if somebody else is going to care more about your money than you do. But we literally have been brainwashed to believe that we're not smart enough to manage your own money. Oh, I can't do that. I need a financial advisor. Oh, I can't do that. I need a bank to do this because that's what they do. They only care about what they're making, folks. They don't care about your money. They don't care if you lose money. They don't care about squat except for what they're making. And that is what I saw after 16 years of being a high-level financial advisor, which, you know, some of the reasons what, that led me to, uh, you know, when I retired in 2018 from the, the traditional high-level financial Wall Street world, and uh, I started uh, teaching the truth about money. Wow, that's interesting. Love that. That I, I think that's great. I hope there's some stockbrokers and people in the financial world that's listening to this because they'd be, it'd be, they might be like 
biting their nails in anticipation. I hope they're not. He's not going to let out the secrets. No, I anyway. know. Seriously, like <laughs> I, I could. I, I I often try to kind of sprinkle it in there, but you know, I I also respect financial advisors because I think deep down they really do have sure. the best intentions to help their clients. I yeah. just think that the company, the companies, the Wall Street world, if you will, will never allow them to tell their clients the truth because of you know it's not beneficial financially for them. Like what I do today it would be the worst thing for Wall Street to teach their advisors because their advisors would make 90% less money, but their clients would have 90% more money. So you can kind of see the relationships. 100%. Very cool. And what happened to your shops, by the way? We didn't get to the end of the story. Yeah. So shops, uh, I sold them. So I didn't get into the Great Recession. So we talked about the dot-com crash, right. which is literally like might just as well have been a blip compared to 2008. But, you know, from 2000, let's just say early 2000s to 2008, I was crushing it in the financial world. Everything was starting to go really well again. I had expanded my retail stores, bought out partners. And in 08, I decided to, well, 06, I flipped a house. 07, I flipped another house. And then in 08, I decided to buy a dilapidated paint store, which was going to be the new home of Fat Man Board Shop's uh, flagship store. And I was going to convert it into a strip mall because why pay somebody else rent? when your tenants can pay you rent, right? Exactly. Brilliant idea. But unfortunately, timing wasn't exactly on my side because as I did that, I bought this, this strip mall. I borrowed money from a hard money lender and all of a sudden the great recession hits. And now I'd already been through a recession and I'm in a financial advisor and I'm like, now I know what this is. Oh my God. Well, it brought me to my knees to the point where I literally almost went bankrupt. Uh, I had to actually come home one night and ask my girlfriend who just moved into my house. She was like the trophy girl, you know, and she just moved in. And I said, sweetie, I need your help. I had no money. I had nothing. And I said, because obviously think about it, the Great Recession, like my retail stores are tanking and my financial advisory business crickets. Like nobody was investing money during the Great Recession. Yeah. Like it, it, well, the wealthy were, but not the people I was working with. Sure. And uh, I asked her to start paying my mortgage. I asked her to start you know, helping with my utilities. And I moved two people into the house that we lived in and I rented bedrooms just to make it through that time. Wow. So that's, uh, that's kind of got me through 08. Now, after 08, I was crippled. I'm not gonna lie. Like I started switching focus from like the retail stores, which I was starting to get burned out after 08, like in retail, I don't care what kind of store you were in, you were burned out, you had been kicked so badly while you're down that you didn't even know whether or not you could continue. And that was me. So I'm still a financial advisor, I'm still snowboarding. And I'm just looking at this shop. And I'm saying, and plus, remember, I'm not really working in the stores anymore. I'm like, do I really want this on my shoulders anymore? Do yeah. I really want to deal with this? Do I want to be going there every weekend, you know, worrying about it? Do I want to be yelling at employees, you know, for not doing this? So I started packaging it up to sell it. Now, I knew a, a big chain of stores that always had kind of hinted that they wanted to buy me out because they wanted U.S. exposure. They were a Canadian company. Got it. So I started putting together the whole business to sell it. And the funniest thing is, is other people, when you're trying to sell something, other people get wind and they start coming out of the woodwork to <laughs> actually, you know, come in and say, wait, I heard you're selling fat man. I I'm interested. And I ended up not selling to that big corporation because they were just being a jerk about like my, my retail store. I didn't know, if, or the strip mall. I didn't know if they were going to keep the lease. So I sold it to one of the guys I snowboard with his parents. And uh, that was 2010. I exited random. fat man. <laughs> yep. 2010. I mean, I, I had competed against his son 
and they had heard I was selling it. They were looking at maybe buying another shop, but I was one of the biggest in the area. And uh, we ended up putting together a deal, which, uh, you know, I probably made less money doing it that way, but I, I kept my soul, if you will. I sold it to another <laughs> rider owned and operated. And today, which is 2021, those shops are still flourishing. They're still owning them. They, they still have just an awesome presence in the market. Wow. Very cool. That's a great story. Thanks very much for sharing that with me. Sure. That's that's really cool, man. Listen, I want to go into some other things because I, I love listening to, to stories, but I want to get into some really nitty gritty stuff, if that's all right with you, Chris. Sure thing. And I know that, you know, you've worked in Wall Street and you, you've got such an abundance of knowledge in, in terms of financial uh, and financial and wealth stuff. Um, I'd love to know more about passive income. Does it exist? Number one. Do you believe in it? Number two. Uh, and number three, if it does exist, how does one, where does one look in terms of passive income? Yeah. So the word passive income, I think has a couple different meanings to people. They think yeah. passive income is, oh, I don't have to do a darn thing. Do I believe that that exists? No, uh, I do not. Uh, I think, you know, oh, well, I'm going to buy rentals and I'm going to get a property manager and I'm not going to have to do anything. I'm just going to collect checks from the mailbox. Okay. Until you do it and realize that it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> so I think it's, there's an element of passive there because you're, you're not trading hours for dollars. Your money is actually sure. working for you, but you know, there's always going to be some element of work and all passive income. You know, you can set your money to motion. Here, here's the, the biggest thing. So what is money? You know, money, people need to understand what it is. It's just a means of exchange. Sure. It's something we exchange for goods and services, for houses, for cars. And once we understand that, we have to understand that money is not evil. Money is not a bad thing. Money is a tool, just like the shovel in your garage that you need when you want to put a garden in. You want to put a garden in, you need a shovel. So that shovel becomes very important in the time when you actually need it. Money is no different. Money's really not an important tool until you actually need it. Unfortunately, today's world, we always need it, but you get the drift. <laughs> so we have been taught from grade school all the way up to trade hours for dollars. And, and maybe that's not the right way to say it, but we have been taught to work for money. Right. And that is all we get taught. I don't care what level of college you are. You tell me one college course that teaches you how to make your money work for you. And I will tell you, you found yourself a good college because none of them do. They all teach you how to be a good employee, a good business owner, a good steward of working for money. See, this is where we start to diminish like what I used to do as a financial advisor and what I've learned after that world from being around and hanging out with multimillionaires and billionaires and learning the secrets of the wealthy and literally cracking the code to what do the wealthy do that we don't. So the first thing the wealthy learn, and they learned it many a long time ago, maybe back at the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, or even before that, they learned that if you are always working for money, there's a cap to what you can make. There's a cap to your entire life. The second you start learning how to take the money that you've earned and make it work for you is when it all changes. So let's just take it down. I don't want to get into what the wealthy do with money, but everything I'm going to tell you that you can do is what the wealthy do. Fair enough. So the biggest thing right now, that, and I'm just going to speak in today's world that people are making the mistake on is a lot of people have homes and those homes have trapped in them a whole lot of hidden equity because your house is appreciated and you're excited. You actually sometimes brag about it when you're at the bar having a cocktail. You're bragging that, sorry, my shop cat loves to jump up and be part of every podcast. 
So we brag that we've got all this equity in our house, but literally think about what you're doing when you're talking about the equity in your house. You're doing nothing that benefits your life. You are talking about equity that is trapped in the rafters. Think of it this way. The equity in your house is no different than you just come home from a very hard day of working. It's late at night. You're exhausted. And you open your front door and you look over on your couch. And what is sitting there is your money. And it's laughing. It's watching your TV. It's drinking your soda. It's eating your Lay's potato chips. It's having a grand old time. And it looks back at you and says, what? Did you have a hard day? That's what your money's doing if you're leaving it sit in equity. Smart people, every wealthy individual I know, if they have equity in a property, they have extracted or taken control of that equity and put that equity to work because they're not going to leave that money sitting lazy on the couch. They're going to say, you know what, money? You're going to get up and you're going to go to work today and you're never going to come home. You're never going to get a break. And by the way, I don't pay. And the money will say, thank God you finally asked me this. I've been sitting here waiting and you're almost out of Pepsi and Coca-Cola. So what was I going to do after that? Your money wants to work for you, but you don't know how to make it work for you. So how do you then turn that money into a force that goes out and work? Well, you have to then start thinking like a bank. How does a bank move your money? Because you've gotten really good at depositing money in a bank, but what does the bank do? Does it put your money in a little box with your name on it in the back? Absolutely not. Banks move money. There's not a business in the world that does not move money in the form of inventory, everything else. They all move money. But we have been taught to take our hard-earned dollars. We take the money that we make. Here's a bunch of hundreds. And what do we do? We give it to somebody else. We give it to an advisor. We park it in the bank where then that person, that advisor, that advisory firm, that, that bank then takes and moves that money and makes money on it. And they give you the scraps. If that, a bank doesn't even give you the scraps anymore. <laughs> so how do we change the dynamic? Well, we have to learn some things. First off, we have to learn that first off, if the bank is not the right place to store your capital, where is? Well, look at the wealthy. Rockefellers, Rothschilds, JPs, Morgans, Walt Disney, Ray Kroc. I could go on for days. Where do they put their money? They don't leave their wealth, their capital in traditional banks. They create their own banking system, folks. And you know, when I tell people what this banking system consists of, Everybody's got a false conception of what I'm about to tell them. They think they know what they don't know, which makes me love Will Rogers' quote. The biggest problem in, in the world is not what people don't know. It's what they think they know that just ain't so. So where do the wealthy put their money? Insurance companies, folks. They use giant mutually owned insurance companies. Look it up. You don't have to believe me. Just look it up. They all do it. And how do they just, do they just walk into the insurance company and say, hey, I'm here. I got my money. Can I deposit it in uh, this insurance company? The insurance company would say, there's the door. See where it says exit? Don't ever come back. We're not <laughs> a bank. So you'd have to figure out first how to get your money in the insurance company and how to benefit from the insurance company's returns that they can pay you on a guaranteed basis. And the way that that has been done for hundreds of years is through a product that you all know, but most of you have no clue how it operates. And it is called whole life insurance. Now, before you stop listening, I am not talking about whole life insurance that your broke ass brother-in-law sold you. I'm not talking about the whole life insurance you buy from the insurance store. I am talking about a completely custom designed and engineered whole life plan that is designed to work for banking, not as a life insurance plan. There always will be life insurance, but it's not designed to do that. So now that you understand that, I hopefully have piqued your interest because why would, why would, people use whole life to store their capital? Well, the next question I would say is who else uses it? Traditional banks where you deposit your money, 
Where is the number one place they put their capital? Ha, it's called Boli, B-O-L-I. Look it up. It's bank-owned life insurance. It's whole life, folks. Banks own more whole life than they do the land in the buildings, and they own a lot of land and buildings. So are they stupid, or do they know something we don't know? They know something, and I'll tell you what they know. They know how whole life can work when designed as a banking system. And the one thing that they tap into and the one thing all the wealthy tap into and the one thing all of you need to tap into is what I would say is the probable, probably the closest thing you'll ever get to a truly passive way to make money. And that is called uninterrupted compound interest. You probably know what compound interest is, but what you think of compound interest because of your education or lack thereof is you take your money that you've earned, which I'm holding a stack of hundreds, and you put it into something and you leave it sit there and then it grows through compound interest. Do you think the wealthy want to leave their money just parked somewhere sitting? No, they want to move their money. They want to put their money somewhere and then they want to go back in and they want to take that money out and then put it somewhere else and then make money from that and put it somewhere else and keep their money working for them over and over in multiple places. But how is it that you can earn uninterrupted compound interest, make your money earn interest while you're still taking it out and using it? There's nowhere that does that. That's, that sounds too good to be true. Well, the specially designed and engineered whole life policies do exactly that. I can take money. I can deposit it into these, these, we're going to call it a private banking system. It's just whole life deposit sure. it in there. I can then immediately in the next 30 days, go back in and take, let's just say a big chunk of that money out. Let's say I put in $10,000. I can go back in and take 8,000 or 8,500 of that money back out. And then I can go at them. Hey, do you got any opportunities for me that are paying 10%? And Adam's like, yeah, I just got this real estate deal and I need some money for rehab. So yeah, I'll pay you 10%. You got, how much you got? I got 8,500 bucks. Can you use that? Perfect. Adam, here's $8,500. And then Adam starts paying me 10%. So what just happened with that transaction? Well, first off, I changed one thing. Adam and I put my money in this specially designed whole life. Then I immediately in the next 30 days took out a large chunk of that money. But when I took that money out, I started with 10 and I took, let's just round it up to nine grand for simple math. I took out nine grand. There should only be a thousand dollars left in my account by, by math. Wrong. There's $10,000 left in my account. That nine grand I'm holding isn't my money. My money's nice and comfy sitting in that account at that insurance company, earning a guaranteed interest rate and dividends. So the nine grand, whose money is that? Did I steal it? No. The insurance company gladly gave me nine grand and they advanced me part of my death benefit in the form of a loan. But the loan never needs to be paid back because the insurance company doesn't care if I pay it back. Because someday when I die, they subtract the nine grand from that death benefit that's left that maybe I care about, maybe I don't. So I got nine grand. I give Adam nine grand. Adam then pays me 10% on that nine grand. I'm making money twice, not once. My money now, without me working any harder, without me working any longer, without me taking on any risk or losing control of my money, my money's making twice, two times I'm making money. And I didn't do anything different besides where my money went. Once you understand that one concept, you now start to see the path of how the wealthy continuously, how the wealthy continuously keep getting wealthier and they don't have to really work any harder. They just make their money work harder for them. By the way, uh, for you guys that are listening in, uh, I was going to say that uh, we, Chris has got a cat and he, uh, he wants 
desperate attention because we're talking about money. So, uh, so don't worry. His about name is Lazy Cash. Yeah. <laughs> Lazy Cash wants attention. Yeah, he's our shop cat. So I bring him to work with me every day just to get you know get him into a different environment. And today he's being a bad lazy cat. <laughs> love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. All good. Listen, I, I there was something actually that really um, came to my mind when we were talking about uh, money and wealth, right? And I know that when I grew up, and I don't know if it's the same in America, but in Europe in particular, money was one of those taboo subjects, right? It was one of those taboo things, a bit like sex, right? You, you don't talk about sex with your parents, right? It's one of those taboo things. We, don't, we shouldn't talk about money. I don't, do you think that those traditions are still around today? 100%. I know for a fact. Yeah. I talk to thousands of people and we help thousands of people. And I will tell you, none of them are comfortable talking about money because it's taboo. It's, it's just like yeah. you said. Right. And I don't know where that comes from and why that comes. Oh, you can't talk about money. Oh, don't ask them how much money they make. Oh, don't ask them what they do with money. Heck yeah. Right. Like people like talking about it, but you got to start the conversation because everybody's like, Ooh, uh, I don't know if we should be talking. It's like politics <laughs> today, right? Ooh, I don't think we should be talking about that. Of course you should. It's just a tool in your garage. Yeah, I just thought I'd kind of ask that question because I'm sure that you get like a lot of clients that sort of say, oh, no, 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 we shouldn't talk about that. No, Chris, no, mm -hmm. no, no, kind of thing. Anyway, the next question I wanted to ask you, actually, what's the correlation between creating wealth and having the right mindset? We know that. Uh, we know the answer. One, so just so everybody understands correlation, correlation is like, you know, if one thing moves, does the other thing move? Like stocks, like, is it correlated to the stock market? Right. 100%. Not 99, not 80%. The correlation between your mindset and your wealth is 100% correlated. That is the number one thing that will stop anyone dead in their tracks from building wealth is a bad mindset. A mindset that says, oh, I can't do that. A mindset that says, oh, that's too good to be true. Research it yourself. Like exactly. Everything is available at the click of a finger with a thing called Google. I don't understand why people ever say, oh, that sounds too good to be true. Go prove it. Prove it. It's right there under your, you know, under your fingers. Now, interestingly enough, okay, so that's good. So we got that out of the way. We know there's a correlation. Now, there are going to be some of our listeners that are listening in and are thinking, okay, so I've got this thing around money. I want to create more wealth, but you know, kind of my parents or I, I've got these engrossed hab habits which have kind of holding me back. What are maybe some of the tips or strategies that you have that maybe you give to some of your clients and say, go away and do these tactics and strategies to help condition your mind, then come back to me and six months later, then we can work on the rest. What's your thoughts? Well, first off, I can't fix a broken mindset. So I'll immediately dismiss somebody that's got a broken mindset and say, go fix that first. But the hard thing about fixing a broken mindset is it comes from those that we love. Remember right. I mentioned my dad and my entire family shunning my, my dreams. Yep. I can't understand. Listen, here's the biggest thing everybody needs to understand. This is from Earl Nightingale. If you guys haven't watched Earl Nightingale's The Strangest Secret in the World, immediately when you're done with this, stop YouTube Earl Nightingale's Strangest Secret in the World. The number one reason that people become successful or people fail is this. Successful people amount to 5%, okay, of the population. Like if you took 100 people and you said, all right, are these 100 people going to be successful? Only five of them will. Only one of them will be wealthy. Why? And this isn't just the U.S. This is across the country or across the right. world. The number one reason is creation. The successful, the 5% or those five out of 100, 
What did they do different than the 95% that are not successful? It is so simple, but so complicated. It is they created something. They created their destiny. They created their job. They created, or they, not their job. They created their business. They created something that changed somebody else's life, something that solved somebody else's problem. What did the other 95% do that led them to this path of not being successful or whatever you want to call it? Simple. They conformed to everybody else's ideologies. They conform to everybody else's failed dreams. They conform to what people tell them they can't do when those people have never accomplished it themselves. And yet people listen. People actually go out there and bloody listen to these people <laughs> telling them that their dream is crap when, they, when these people can't even keep a roof over their head. It pisses me off, but I see this every day, Adam. Yeah. Every day in my position, I help tens of thousands of people. And every single day of my life, I hear people saying that they can't do something. They'll never be successful because somebody told them they couldn't. And who is that somebody? Their loved ones, their family, the people closest to them. Damn it, people put them in time out, watch hockey and watch when one of them gets in a fight or does something bad on the ice. You're in time out. Put these people in time out. I've had to do it. Do you think it's easy? No, Adam, it sucks. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do. You got to take your loved ones and you got to literally put them in timeout, which means don't talk to them. Tell them you're not going to stand in the way of my dreams. I don't care who you are and I don't care who you think you are. Your mindset's broken. Mine isn't. I'm going to chase my dreams because here's what will happen, folks. When you chase your dreams and you have success and then these people, these, these naysayers, these, these broken mindset people, when they see you having success, they come out of timeout and then they want to latch on to you and they want to take what you've done. Don't allow that. I've had that happen a lot recently in my life. Like not so much on, well, no, on my side of the family, but definitely on my wife's. Like they seen that we have success, then all of a sudden they think we owe them something. Now you could give, and I think giving is the number one thing, but when people expect because of a relationship or people expect because they're part of their family, you gotta stop that in its tracks. Give, 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 but give to people that need. Give to people that you feel good about giving. Don't just give because somebody asked. Don't just give because somebody feels like they deserve something because they're your family. That will never help them. You will hurt them more than you will help them. So folks, don't let other people stand in the way of your dreams. It's hard, but you have to make that stand. No successful person that I've ever met has ever told me that they never had anybody push back. They have had to go through some of the hardest times in their life. They have had to fail, which was just a learning experience to get where they are. And when they were failing, who was the biggest cheerleaders for their failures? Yes, they're naysayers. But when they succeeded, they were their naysayers couldn't quite comprehend how did that happen. And then they think they owe the, some, or they think they're owed something. Sorry, I went on a tangent. I got a little loud there because it just upsets me more than anything else. A broken mindset is one of the most dangerous things that people, humans, have. Love it, love it. But I love, I love the passion and I love the energy and the enthusiasm because you you make a real important point. You know, and sometimes you just have to let go of people, whether it be, I don't know, because otherwise they turn into really toxic people. You don't need toxicity. I mean, just look at the way the world is right now. There's plenty of sheep out there. Don't be one of those sheep, right? And we're just not even going to go there in those conversations. But that's a whole new conversation. Oh, yeah, I have the shirts. Lions, <laughs> not sheep. Love it, love it, love it. Anyway, um, I was going to say, I've got a I, I, one of my last questions, actually, before we... Uh, uh, clock off is you talked earlier on about the whole kind of 
society and school and college, you know, conditioned us to think, you know, we were trading time for money for a job or a business or whatever it might be, right? Now, I know it's embedded in people's DNA because it's so deeply rooted, right? How does one, how does one disrupt the norm? If you get my drift. It's, it's very easy. The biggest problem with schools and college and all the higher education is they're a profit center. They're a profit business. They're not nonprofit. So they don't care if you know what you want or if you think you know where you're going. They just want to sell you some form of education that they profit from. Now, I'm putting this at a high level, but I think the disrupt is this. People need to understand what they want before they then begin a journey of going nowhere. And think of it as your car, right? If you get in your car and you want to go somewhere, somewhere, but you don't know where you're going to go. You're just going to aimlessly drive around, burn a lot of fuel. It's going to be completely inefficient. Eventually, you're going to get frustrated because you'll get lost. But if you knew exactly where you want to go, and then you use some tools, okay, called the GPS, and you put in that destination, and you followed the instructions to the T. You didn't be like, oh, no, that can't be right. That Now, that definitely isn't the way to get there. You just listened, and you just followed the instructions. Right. And you got to your destination. That would be the most efficient possible way you could get there. And all of you do this with your cars. Hopefully you don't defy the GPS. It does know how to get you where you're going faster than you do. Think of your life now. A mentor of mine that I pay a lot of money to once almost like stopped mentoring me because I thought I knew where I was going and I didn't. And he says to me after a long talk, he says, Chris, you're working as hard as you are, not because of all the things you said or the things that you believe. He says, you don't even know why you're working for what you're working for. He said, you first, before I can ever help you or any mentor or coach can ever help you, you need to figure out what does your perfect day look like? And what does that mean? And, and I said, oh, I, I can tell you. And he said, no, you can't. He said, you need to be able to tell me that from the second you wake up in the morning and open your eyes, you need to be able to tell me every single thing from that point to the second you close your eyes and go to sleep in that day. What would your perfect day look like? Describe it to me. There's very, very few people that could actually describe that to you because they don't know what that perfect day looks like. And then maybe they do figure that out, which took me a month to write my perfect day. Yeah. They figure it out. Now, all of a sudden, they get to that perfect day and they've, they've now arrived at that perfect day. Right. A smarter or successful person will then change that perfect day and they will strive for a different perfect day because you don't want to get stuck in the arrival syndrome. I think the disrupt folks is that simple figure out what your perfect day looks like, figure out what it is you're working for. And when you hit it for crying out loud, don't stop there, raise the bar. You will never arrive at your perfect day because you will constantly change that perfect day to be bigger. And then, you know, a lot of people want to associate the, the perfect day with things because a lot of people are caught up <laughs> into material things, right. which is a trap. Once you get to that level where you literally are saying, I, I don't need any more money, and you will get there if you, if you begin this journey, where I don't need any more money, good. You know what you do then? You start figuring out how can you give more and help more people solve more of their problems and give unconditionally. I do that. That's, I think the number one reason for my success is I give unconditionally all the time. I give to random people. I give whatever my heart says. I write checks almost on a daily basis to those stupid things you get in the mail asking for money. I give. I give because you know what? I understand the universal law. 
And the a law, just like gravity, can't be bent, can't be broken. And if you just play into laws, then you will always have the benefits that are predictable. Time-wise, there's no time that can be put to that, but there will always be a predictable outcome. If you give, and giving doesn't just mean writing checks or giving money. It means giving yourself. It means giving your time. It means solving other people's problems. Zig Ziglar said it best. If you help enough people get what they want, you get what you want. Holy cow. Could it really be that simple? It is true. And the Bible says it straight up through Napoleon Hills, think and grow rich. There are books after books, but yet people just ignore this. Folks, if it's a law, if it's a, if it's a, a law and it can't be bent like gravity, then test it. Go to the highest building in your town and jump. What happens next? Gravity kicks in and you die or maybe you get mangled, but it, you're not going to break that. You're not going to change gravity. So if you can't change gravity, what makes you think you can change this universal law about giving? You yeah. can't. Just do. That's the disrupt. Very cool. Love it. And and you know what? I'm I'm a real big fan of what you've said there because um I think you know it's really interesting. I think in people always have this philosophy of I want to help people, but in context, you know, they really don't want know what that looks like because most of the people, some people that I know, they want to help people before they even help themselves. That that goes against my law. It's just like, well, why would you do that? It's like, why would you, why would you even contemplating on doing that? Why don't you look after yourself first? Then you think about helping others, right? That just really pisses me off. Um, but anyway, that's a, again, that's a, that's a whole new conversation that we can have. It, 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 and so, but listen, I'd love to know what um, our listeners would love to know what you're working on right now, because I know that you've had a lot of success pro snowboarding and financial wealth, wall street, all of that kind of stuff. What are you working on right now, Chris? I'm always working on stuff, but right now my number one focus is YouTube uh, and goes right into giving, right? Giving more. So how do you give more? You create unbelievable content that people can learn from, apply and change their lives with. And that's my focus right now. And I put probably the equivalent of what most people would do in a full-time job. That much time goes into creating content, creating videos, showing people how to mimic the wealthy, how to do what the wealthy do and how to change their life. And I've been kind of going a little over and you mentioned earlier on the mindset side, because I'm, I'm still somewhat convinced that I think I can help, help people. I can't fix people's broken mindset, but oh. I can help them get from a broken mindset to at least a, a, uh, uh you know, or in remission mindset, if you will, right. <laughs> fix bro- can't no. fix a broken one. No. And uh, I've been doing that a lot. And I've also been speaking a lot now that COVID, you know, is kind of, I, I wouldn't say it's calming down. I just finished having COVID that sucked, but um, I've been out speaking. I just got back from seven days speaking at three different events out in California. So I, I love being on the stage. It allows me to really, really impact people. So I'm going to start doing more of that, but I'll take that and pair that back into the content. Cool. Love it. Very good. So, um, so guys, hope you've enjoyed uh, today's amazing show, by the way. So make sure that you, before you even think about finishing today's episode, click on um, you, uh, Chris's YouTube channel, and you can do so by clicking on the link below. And uh, make sure you subscribe and click on the bell as you activate as always. And you can, uh, you can then get uh, notifications when he goes live and so forth. Uh, and uh, and you know learn about some of the habits of the rich and the wealthy and the mindset and all of that kind of stuff. And I think it's such a big, such a uh, such a, a a big topic: money and wealth creation and stuff like that. You know, it's not one that can just be done through you know a, an awesome great show like this. You know, we've been speaking just under an hour, but 
you know, there's so much more we could, me and Chris could pretty much speak for, for hours on that. But uh, Chris, just want to say thanks very much for being on the show today, buddy. Oh, no, it was amazing. Thanks for having me on. All good. Listen, guys, hope you enjoyed today and uh, we'll see you again on the next Game Changers audio experience. Take care and see you soon. Cheers. Hey, you guys, I just want to say thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Game Changers experience. I hope that you got some amazing value, some great insights and golden nuggets that you can implement into your business straight away. I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review on the button below. Have a fantastic day and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.